thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome to this Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy. And tonight we're going to be covering chapters 20 through 22. And this is a continuation of the discourse that Moses gives Israel before they enter the Holy Land. And he's covering a number of topics. Those topics are obviously very applicable to them, but they also are applicable to us because they help us understand God's perspective on our lives. I thought that before we undertake the, the study of these chapters through 20 through 22, it might be fruitful for us to put them a little bit into perspective. And by this, I mean to look at how these teachings of Deuteronomy and also Leviticus are echoed in the New Testament. Are echoed in the New Testament. Particularly, particularly the teaching that um, God is not just a God of mercy, but also a God of justice. And that His mercy is not His justice. Those are separate, but both are very, very important. In fact, our appreciation of his mercy grows as we appreciate his justice. Because if we have someone who's lax and he says he's merciful, well, he's lax. Anything goes. What do you need mercy for? But if you have someone who's just and severe and shows mercy, that mercy is appreciated. Make sense? So, I wanted to put that into perspective by taking on a chapter from the letter to the Hebrews. Here's what this chapter says. And I hope that you will start to see how the study of the Old Testament help us better understand these letters. And you will see there are some passages in them that without the study we're doing would seem strange to your ears or our ears. So Hebrew 10. He's talking about the law, the law that we are presently studying. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, verse 1, he's saying basically that the law that we're studying right now was like a pointer, a sign to the realities that Christ will bring about. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, 
it can never buy the same sacrifices. Which sacrifices? The sacrifices offered at the temple. So notice, because he's talking about sacrifices, we can already infer that the temple of Jerusalem was still standing when he wrote that letter. Hence, this letter is very ancient. It predates the year um, 66 AD. So it's a very ancient letter. Therefore, it's, very, it's, it's, it's a letter written during the contemporaries of Jesus. Right? It can never, by the same sacrifices, which are continuous, continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. I hope this is something now you're all familiar with. We've repeatedly said it over and over again. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament cannot perfect the conscience of the believer. All they can do is make people acceptable when they've committed an unintentional sin. That's it. The laws of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament does not forgive Intentional sins. All right? Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? If the worshippers had once been cleansed, they would no longer have any consciousness of sin. It's basically saying, if they did what they're supposed to do, well, that was it. We would not have to continuously offer them. Which, by the way, is very interesting and illuminating when you put it into a Protestant context. When they, someone says... All I need to say is just, I take Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I'm done. Right? And Jesus was sacrificed once and for all. Yeah, it's true. Our Lord was, sac- was sacrificed once and for all. This is a Catholic teaching. But we need something, some way to bring about the effect of that sacrifice, the graces, for us who live now 2,000 years after. Yeah? Because if that was not so, why is the author of Hebrews making that point. So that's a sort of an interesting aside. However, he's basically saying they were unable to achieve their aim. They could not perfect the conscience of the believer. All right. But if these sacrifices there, but in these sacrifices, I'm sorry, verse 3, there is a reminder of sin year after year, for it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. All right. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings thou hast not desired, but a body hast thou prepared for me. Why did Christ say that? And Because this, this might seem strange to our ears and to understand, but a body thou hast prepared for me, because that body will be what? The ultimate sacrifice. Right? Yeah. He, that is, sacrifice of blood and goat thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast made for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Lo, I have come to do thy will, O God, as it is written me in the role of, of, of the book. When he said above, Thou hast neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then he added, Lo, I have come to do thy will. Which means that all these sacrifices we're studying about were not doing God's will. You understand? Lo, I have come to do thy will. Why, why, why were they not doing God's will? Well, because they cannot sanctify the believers, they cannot make them in the image of God. They cannot turn them back to their eternal destiny. Therefore, they could never satisfy God. Well, then why did God give them those sacrifices in the first place? Well, this is something we've alluded to a number of times, but keep that thought in mind. We'll come back to it. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. 
Yes, sanctified once and for all through the body of Jesus. What does it mean? It means that Jesus offered himself once and for all, and through that once and for all offering, we are sanctified. However, that sanctification didn't happen only on the cross. It's an ongoing process. Right? It never ceases to happen. Okay. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, then to wait until his enemies should be made a stool for his feet. I want you to notice that language. Notice the language of Scripture. Until his enemies. And there is no detailed explanation about that verse. See, I want you to be aware, I want all of us to be aware of that language because the cultural setting we live in is conditioning us against Scripture. The cultural setting we live in, the culture we live in, is hell-bent on thrusting mercy down our throat at any cost, even at the cost of truth. And therefore our conscience, who is attracted by such a pleasant, pleasant solution, gives in. And hence, Scripture becomes incomprehensible. We become the enemy of Scripture because we cannot understand those verses. We explain that away. Well, God doesn't have any enemies. He loves everybody. How could he have any enemies? Let's keep on reading. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant, key on that word, the covenant that I may, I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. What is the language that he has in mind when he says those words? What was he talking about at the beginning of the chapter? The law, the current law, right? What was that law written on? You understand now the language? I will inscribe, I will write my law on their heart. And the reason why God wrote the ancient law on stone is because the the heart of men was harder than stone. Okay, But the sanctifying act of Christ, the grace that he had won for us, soften the heart of men and make it then possible for God to write his law on our heart. And then he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their misdeeds no more. I will remember their sins and their misdeeds no more. That's the forgiveness of sins. Right? That's the forgiveness of sins that is possible through the sacrifice of Christ, which was not possible in the the Deuteronomic time. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus... Watch, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary, why does he say that? Because in the Old Testament, we would not have confidence to enter the sanctuary. Because we would not know if we can stand and live. And further, most of us would be barred from entering the holy. Only priests could enter the holy. And certainly none of us could enter the holy of holies. But watch, since we have confidence to enter. Why? Because it's open. Christ opened it for us, right? By the new and living way, which he opened for us through the curtain. What what curtain is he talking about? It's the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. That curtain has been rent apart, as we know from the Gospel of Matthew. So it's open. Now we can see. 
So therefore, we live at the footstep of heaven. We are no longer estranged with God. We are now much closer to God. All right. By the new and living way, which he opened for us to the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled, sprinkled, that's the word in Greek for baptism, right, same word, hmm? clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he promised it. For he, for, for he who promises is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all, the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay. So, now you've been purified. We've been purified. We've been sanctified. Our sins have been forgiven. Therefore, we should produce fruits. That's what he's basically saying. We should encourage one another. We, can, we should help each other because that day is drawing near. Now, for if we sin deliberately, why does he say deliberately? Because obviously the Old Testament was about unintentional sin, right? Those are the only ones that could be forgiven. In the New Testament, deliberate sin could be forgiven, right? But when he says, for if we sin deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, you receive the knowledge. You know. So, let's take an example. You, you are a Catholic, and you know the teaching of the church on contraception, and you decide to contracept. That's a deliberate sin. As simple as that. It's not complicated. That's the other thing. We think that we should apply those, those verses to something remote and complicated and really terrible. No, it's not. No? Your brother did something against you, intentionally or otherwise. You decide that you're not going to forgive him. So you're not going to go shake his hand. You're going to go sit down and say, whatever happened, happened. Let's move on. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If you sin deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There is nothing that could save you if you sin deliberately and watch you're not asking for, obviously, you're not contrite, you're not sorry, you're, you decided to sin, that's it. You're living in your sin and you just don't want to get out of it. There is nothing that could save you. Well, there is no sacrifice. Now, God, obviously, can operate in, in a different way. A man who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. Key on the language. Dies without mercy. If you intentionally violate the laws of Moses, two witnesses can come and say, he did this and this, so and so. That's it. He dies without mercy. It's hard to our ears to hear that. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the man who has spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and outraged the Spirit of grace? This is Trinitarian language, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved here. How much worse punishment do you think? This is from which we get, by the way, one of the reasons why we think in hell there are levels of punishment. Right? How much worse punishment? The other guy died without mercy. How much worse? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Who said that? Where is he quoting that from? He's quoting the Psalms. 
It is the Lord who's talking. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Now, this is the verse I want you to remember. I want you to remember this verse and repeat it often. Verse 31. Because this is a verse that will help you steer clear from this danger of thinking that God is so merciful that, oh, well, he's going to forgive me. Therefore, I can be lenient and do whatever I want. Verse 31. It is, it is a fearful thing. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of Of the living God. It is a fearful thing. To fall. Into the hands. Of the living God. Who is he talking about? He's talking about. The Lord Jesus Christ. This is. You can see how foreign this language can be to our ears. What do you mean it's a fearful thing. To fall in the hands of Jesus Christ. He's the good shepherd. He's the one who cares about his lamb. If the lamb is lost, he will go and seek the lamb and will bring her back. And all these things are absolutely true. Gospel truth. Jesus is merciful beyond our understanding. Right? Chapter Divine Mercy, St. Faustina. Jesus loves absolutely, yes, yes. But don't let that cover the other side of the story. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In other words, do not take God for granted. And how is it that we show we don't take God for granted? Number one, by giving Him proper worship. It is our duty to worship the Lord. We come on Sunday to worship God because first and foremost, it is our duty to do so. Not because we need something, not because we would like to get something, because it is our duty. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We don't take God for granted. That's number one. Number two, in the way we act towards others, because they're sons and daughters of God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All right. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of a flavor of what happens in the New Testament. It does not in any way, shape, or form contradict anything we see in the Old Testament. It confirms it. And it it is therefore important for us to keep reminding ourselves of the truth of our faith, namely that the Lord Jesus Christ is, first and foremost, Lord over the entire history of humanity, and that our entire life is a conversation with Him. And we should never be anxious, no matter what is happening around us, because nothing escapes his dominion. Nothing escapes his authority. Nothing escapes the final victory that he won for us on the cross. That is the truth. That's what we must live by and abide by. But let us not also forget who he is. It is far better for us to come to him in fear and trembling and stand in the back of the church like that tax collector who did not even dare to raise his his eyes to heaven but asked for mercy, then like the Pharisee who walked in full of confidence and thinking that God will listen to him because he paid his tithe and he fasted and this and then the other, and he's not like this other guy over there. 
watch our, watch, we should watch ourselves. We should examine our conscience and always make sure that we root out of it any tendency to being condescending, to feel superior, to think that we're superior. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if you follow that path, that is a sure path because then you're not presuming on God's mercy. You're not taking His mercy for granted. So that when He actually bestows His mercy on you, you can rejoice. Very well. Let's now move on through chapter 20. Chapter 20 consists of three laws about warfare. Now Moses is instructing them about warfare. The very first thing I want to point out to you, and again I said to you how our current culture is truly contra-scriptural. But it's not the only time throughout history that the culture has become anti-Catholic, anti-scriptural. Right? Moses is giving them laws about warfare. But nowhere does he say, uh, all wars are unjust, we shouldn't have any war, it's a terrible thing, always and everywhere, we should just get rid of war. Never says that. Nor does he extol war at all costs. Like every time we have somebody who we don't like or we think uh, or, or we're afraid of, let's just go and war. That's not the case. Right? The teachings of the church has con- consistently been that War, in general, is really an, um, it, it's a disaster. It's a terrible thing when we get into a war. The effect of war is always worse than we can ever imagine. Things get out of control, and a lot of people suffer. Right? That's, a, that's a constant teaching of the church. But there is such a thing as a defensive war. There is such a thing as a war that, require, that we have to get into in order to stop a certain evil. Those things do are, 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 um, um, are part of our teaching. So, again, beware of falling into this sort of, um, this sort of a, essentially a heresy that's denying original sin. A heresy that would say, okay, everything that we need, if we were just good people, if we had the right education, if we could just make sure everybody's educated with degrees, if we could just eradicate poverty and make sure all the poor people are no longer poor and everybody's educated, then we'll take care of all these issues. The German population, when they became Nazi, were the highest educated people in Europe. So, the, no, there is such a thing as original sin and there is such a thing as a devil. Hence, the number of factors that are involved in the life that we live are much greater than we think about, and a lot of them are outside of our control. So what Moses is telling them then, in the reality of wars, when you prepare the army for the battle, it is important that the priest reminds the troops of God's presence. You see, the problem is that fundamentally, we tend to fight godless wars. Godless wars. There are wars, or battles at least, not wars, but battles that were fought with God in mind. Uh, I can think of the Battle of Lepanto, which determined the Christian future of Europe. It's a very important battle. And others like it. Many battles that were fought during the Second World War, in which American soldiers gave their lives so that 
Nazism could be defeated. Many of these battles were fought with God in mind. But a lot of battles are fought in a godless way. Why? Because we live in a godless way. And our soldiers are, re- are a reflection of who we are because they are picked from amongst ourselves. So Moses tells them, remember God's presence. Therefore, it is imperative, it is imperative that the soldiers live a true, moral, upright life. Because if they don't live a true, moral, upright life, how can they then be reminded of God's presence? You cannot be reminded of God's presence if you yourself are not seeking God. So if the soldiers themselves are not godly, if the soldiers themselves are not seeking to live a true, moral life in God's presence, then they could not be reminded. It's not just the fault of the priest or the, the, you know, the minister in case of Protestant soldiers. Right? It's also incumbent upon us to be able to do that. And uh, need I remind you now that pornography has been allowed in the military. Now, how could you win a godless, how could you win a, a war with God's presence when you've essentially opened the door to Satan to come in and and um, spread one of the worst ways in which someone can go to hell. But again, I'm not saying this as a sign of doom and gloom. I'm saying this for us to understand the state of the current battle we're in, but never lose sight of the fact that even that, in a mysterious way, will bring about the glory of Jesus Christ. Even that, in a mysterious way, will bring about the glory of Jesus Christ. For everything is made for his greater glory. All right. The second point that they make is that, um, which is really interesting, is that the reliance on a military activity does not require a standing army. And that was also a way for Deuteronomy to split the power or limit the power of the king. Because if a king has a standing army, it is very easy for the king to become a tyrant. He turns his army on his own people. But in the case of Deuteronomy, the king was not allowed to have a standing army. People would be called to battle from the different tribes. Why? Because it is God who's doing battle for them. It is God who is fighting their battle. So, as an example, I can give you a famous battle that happened in the uh, 2nd uh, century B.C., about uh, uh, the year 165, when the Maccabees revolted against the, um, um, the Seleucid Syrian forces because, back then, the Syrian king decided to spread the, the, the uh, Roman culture. So, he went to Jerusalem and he defamed the temple and he turned, made it in a temple for uh, Zeus. And he wanted to force the Jews to worship Zeus. So then Judah's Maccabees, you can read that in the account of the Maccabean books, book one and two. And his brothers revolted and successfully routed the Syrian forces out and restored and dedicated the temple in 165 BC. And that became the feast of, thank you, Hanukkah which in our Maronite rite has become what? We celebrated that 
consecration of the church, right? We have a very short, we have, uh, in a Maronite rite, we don't have ordinary time, pretty much. So at the end of the season of the Holy Cross, we have the season of the consecration and renewal of the church. And it has two Sundays. One is for the building itself, and the second is for the people. And those two, then, are at the gate of the season of Advent, which we are now going to enter very, very soon. In that particular case, Judah Maccabee did not have a standing army. But they called men, and they fought God's battle, and they won. Furthermore, there were, um, they, there were clause put into the laws for deferment from battle. So in the case of someone who has just been married... He was allowed not, he could um, he was actually not allowed to go to battle for a full year, and it was not just for him, it was mostly for his bride. They had the woman in thought. If someone has just planted a vine, that is he started a farm and now is getting successful, the vine is going to produce, he was allowed to stay and receive the fruits of his work, or in case someone has a faint heart, meaning is weak or afraid, he was asked not to participate because then he could demoralize the people around him. Right? So the, the, the moral clause that we see in modern times where someone could invoke these moral clauses to say, we call them, um, what is it? Conscientious objector, right? They could do so in order to not go to war. And that actually trails back to Deuteronomy and other cultures around as well. There was the, not the only one. For instance, um, in the Ugaritic legend of King Carrot, which describes the total mobilization in which new grooms, widows, and even the sick are called up. And the idea here is that in that particular legend, he, it was a complete mobilization because the entire um, um, country was at grave risk. Then everyone got mobilized. And the impl- by implication, therefore, the idea was that in normal cases of war where it is not, a, um, such a grave situation, these would not have been called, like a widower would not have been called, a, uh, a man who just got married would not have been called. So in the ancient times, there were these clauses put in place for these specific cases. All right. Now, they also had very specific clauses about the treatment of a defeated population. And the general rule essentially said that if they attacked a city, they should give them an opportunity to surrender. And if they do surrender, then they would become their slaves. But if they don't, then the law was that they would kill all the men, but then they can keep the children and the women as slaves. Again, something that in our ears today might seem, would seem, and does seem actually, kind of barbaric. But we have to always understand and remember that God works with the people in history. Deuteronomy was not written as a book depicting the laws, the perfect and ideal laws of, that God wants us to follow. That was never the intent of the Bible. The Bible, in most cases, was never written, especially the Old Testament, uh, the historical books, as an account of God's ideal law. It is actually a book that showcases God's love, forbearance, and patience, particularly when his own people are not willing to follow him. And you see it here in this case. If God were to tell them, when you take a city, if they agree, then you make them citizens. 
like you, you would have had a rebellion on your hands. Because those are supposed to be your enemies. You just make them like you, well, they'll, they'll overtake you. Right? So if you start to thinking about, the, about the, the actual practical consequences of the things that, we, that the thoughts that we have in mind about the way we would like to treat others, you would see very quickly that their implementation are not as straightforward as we, as we think they are. And we see it, for instance, today in our own culture where we have the question of the folks who are here and who are um, illegally here. And apparently there are, there are tens of millions of them living in the United States illegally, right? As, or as some might say, the undocumented immigrant. I love that euphemism. This is the kind of thing I'm talking to you about, this sort of hypersensitivity that, that says that we have to, you have to bend over backward to accommodate whomever because, you know, everybody's a victim today. Well, how, do, how, how should we do with a situation like this one? It's not trivial. It's a non-trivial situation to deal with. On the one hand, do you deport 10 million people? On the other hand, do you just make them citizens? How do you deal with it? And whatever solution we're going to come up with, in 230 years from now, people will look back and think, huh, what barbarians. So remember, whatever, thing, whatever situation you might find shocking in the Old Testament, we have like it and even worse. Right? I don't have to even get to talk about abortion, what we're doing with unborn babies. In a couple of centuries from now, presumably, I, I think, the 20th and 21st century will probably be categorized as the darkest centuries. Th- these two centuries will probably be called the Dark Ages. They're worse than anything we've seen in the history of mankind. All right. Now... In Deuteronomy 21, we begin by talking about unsolved murders. And you might wonder, what's it got to do with war? We've just been talking about war, and then he moved to unsolved murder. Well, the connection is as follows. What happens after war or during a war? Chaos. Chaos. So it is completely conceivable that some people will take advantage of the situation. And actually, people do. In the middle of a war, you go settle a few scores. Who's going to? So therefore, that brought about the situation of unsolved murders. What happens when somebody is killed and you don't know who it is? Normally, there is a blood revenge. So if this person was killed in a city, and you can't tell who killed that person, then you might decide the entire city is, is guilty. We'll just kill them all, and then hopefully we'll hit the right guy. That was common in the ancient times. Because blood demanded blood. It was the duty of, these, of, of, of the parents of the person who died to exact revenge. And we still see it today in, uh, in some Muslim context where, for instance, you have, uh, in case a girl is deemed to have dishonored the family, the father or the brother of the girl would kill her. It's called, it's their duty. And if we just think of them as monsters, we are never going to be able to solve this problem. We have to understand what's motivating them and be able to address the root cause of that kind of behavior, which is awful. So anyways, in chapter 21, 
in that case, there is a ceremony which was set aside specifically for the elders of that city where they can go outside the town, find a heifer, and lay their guilt on the heifer and sacrifice the heifer. Which is very interesting because it, this, I don't have time to get into it, but we'll touch on it hopefully next year when I'll do St. Luke. There is there, obviously, the image of Christ, who was, whose guilt, they said we're not guilty, right? The high priest said we're not guilty. They asked for his crucifixion. He was taken outside of the city and killed outside the gates of Jerusalem. And the interesting thing is that the priests here have no participation. Just as in the actual death of Christ, the priests had no participation. They just stood and watched. And here, likewise. It's, it's striking to see the resemblance between the two. But nevertheless, this was in case of an unsolved murder. This is how they would do, deal with it. Then we get into family laws. And that's far more interesting. So... Here, again, there are some regulations which are very foreign to our ears. The first case deals with a situation where a soldier uh, finds among the captured women one whom he likes and he wants to take her as his wife. There is no discussion around you know, the, the, uh, the right of that woman because in the mentality of the ancient people, if we've captured you, we, you, we own you, and that's the end of it. You can, if nothing else, you can see by contrast what the, con- the Christian conscience has done to this world. Because the notion that you should treat prisoners with dignity is a Christian notion. Outside of that notion, there is no such treatment. I had a conversation with two Indians at one point about abortion. And both men readily agreed with me that abortion is horrible and that abortion is killing babies. And they added, matter-of-factly, but that's about our own people. We don't care what happens to the others. It's not their problem. If others want to kill their own babies. If you think about it, that's a far more natural thing, a process, than the one we go through. Why are we fighting for babies who are in China? Or in Europe? I mean... What's, why are they concerned to us? This notion that the dignity of the human being is the same no matter where this person is born and no matter the circumstances under which that person is born is Christian. You find it nowhere else. And that Christian conscience has penetrated the culture and for a time was able to keep these forces at bay. But now the culture is turning against and the, you can see all these forces re-emerging. Um, my wife actually told me that she was listening to uh, a program where they were saying that uh, uh, there were some people who decided to allow, the, for, uh, for Halloween, they decided to allow their kids to put on uh, clue, 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 what is it? The, that thing. Yeah, the KKK clothes. Now, the kids enjoyed that because there were hoods and stuff. That, right. And uh, others had, were dressed as a, uh, the two towers that were being bombed and some other things. So these, the commentators were really shocked by that kind of behavior. But if you really think about it, when you remove 
the boundaries, the moral boundaries around your conscience, there is no, there's anything sacred anymore. Either you're going to follow the laws of God or you're going to get chaos. And there's nothing in between. So Chesterton stated very cogently that the modern man does not know what he's doing because the modern man does not know what he's undoing. And that's what we're seeing right now. Yeah, Chesterton. The modern man does not know what he's doing because the modern man does not know what he's undoing. We're removing all these moral barriers that were put in place over the ages at great price. Blood had been shed for these moral boundaries to be put in place, and we're removing them gaily, and we think it's free. So, in this specific instance, they were basically told that they must leave this woman 30 days to mourn her, the parents that they, they have lost, and then after that they can take her for a wife. But then afterwards... If they decided that she did not please them, then they were not allowed to sell her as a slave. They have to let her go free. Now, that's a great advancement in the conscience of people. I know it sounds strange to our ears, but it's effectively a way from protecting um, the dignity of these women from being then traded as slaves and creating a, a, a full-on legalized slave trade, right? Sex trade would be better, I guess. Thank you, right? So this is what the law is doing. It's placing those barriers to protect these women. Uh, the interesting thing is, as far as uh, the, the way, later on, the way the rabbis understood this is that in order for a woman to be able to marry a Jewish man, she must convert. Because how did she marry a uh, you know, how do you marry someone who's not Jew? You're supposed to marry a Jewish woman. Well, how do you do that? Well, therefore, they understood it to mean that she must convert. And therefore, practically, they've never permitted these types of marriage to take place. Because they did not think it was practical. Punishment of an insubordinate son. It's not a punishment of the insubordinate daughter. Notice. It's punishment of the insubordinate son, and it's meant as the son. Here, there is a limit that is put on the authorities of parents. What they must do in case of a son who is absolutely insubordinate, a son who is not listening to them, who is not obeying them, they must bring him to the elders. And if the elders, and they must present their case to the elders about what the son is doing. And if the elders judge that this son is insubordinate, they stone him to death. Think of the fourth commandment. Honor your mother and your father. Dishonoring the parents, dishonoring the parents is a violation of that fourth commandment. Therefore, it's a violation of the law of God. And they already know that any time a law is violated that God has given, they, the entire community, will be affected. So they understand that. And that's how they see the insubordination of the son. One of the worst things that a son can do would be to slap his father. So that kind of offense was not permitted, but it was not the daughter, it was the son. So verse 21, Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall, shall hear and fear. And then verse 23, which is very important to us, 
which is again cited in the book of Hebrews that I was reading to you from, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree. So, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is accursed by God. You shall not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance. And that's what St. Paul will take back in saying that Christ was accursed by God because he was hanged on the tree. The cross was looked upon as the tree. And by the way, that's the only curse. That's the only curse in the entire Old Testament that is specifically against an individual. Curses usually are communal, not against a specific. This is the only one we know. So that what, this is what Christ did. Christ on the cross took upon himself the, not only our sins. You got to understand this. He just didn't take only our sins. He also took the curse upon himself. The entire effect of the curse he took. And then when he died, and when he rose, he transformed that curse into grace. That's the power of Christ. But you have to realize what Jesus did. If you know folks who feel misunderstood, who grew up as unloved by their parents, parents did not show them the right love, the right attention. If you know people who are suffering from feeling alone, there's nobody out there for them. If you know folks who have, um, who are not, been recognized, who feel that their entire life is a waste, that there is nobody paying any attention to them, please remind them that Jesus went through it all. When he was in his own hometown, his hometown, his folks did not believe in him. His folks were the ones who took him to the top of the hill to throw him headlong. And it's the only time where he did not perform many miracles amongst his own kin. His own disciple, who's supposed to be with him, betrayed him. The others ran away and left him alone. Jesus understands loneliness. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he suffered alone. And his suffering was so great that he sweated blood. He completely understands that situation. So at the very least, remind them that Jesus understands. In chapter 22, verse 5, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on woman's garment. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Is an abomination. So let's understand why. Okay, very good. As wearing pants doesn't mean we're in trouble. I want you to understand... First, before we get to the details of the clothing themselves, understand what is intended behind us, right? Because only the truth will set only the truth will set us free, right? Right. God created man and woman, man and woman, in His own image. Yes. So let's understand what that means. The man by himself is in the image of God. The woman by herself is in the image of God. Yes. But also, and more importantly, the man and the woman together 
are in the image of God. And we understand that by using this beautiful metaphor where we say that just as the woman was made out of the man to to make us understand that Christ proceeds from the Father. See that? So here you have the image of the Father and the Son in the image of the man and the woman. Set aside gender for a second. It's the relationship that matters here. And then the love of the man to the woman is then reciprocated by the love of the woman to the man. And that exchange of love is the bond between them, which is the Holy Spirit, and it's, in fact, the bond in the Trinity. So, therefore, our families are Trinitarian, even if you only have man and woman. There are three, man, woman, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, therefore, the family, as created by God, as created by God, images God. Now, the worst thing that we can do is deform that image. These types of sins are considered abomination. Abomination. Yeah? Anytime we play with that structure that God established, because it is the perfect structure to image the Holy Trinity, anytime we play with it, we are in a situation that is deforming, deforming the image of the Trinity in us, and therefore we are at a grave danger of worshipping a false god or not worshipping God at all. That's why it's an abomination. So understand, what is intended here with this closing business isn't that, well, you know, women have wider hips. They don't look good in pants, so they should wear skirts. It has nothing to do with that. What is meant is that we should never ever deform the gender of a human being. Not just internally, but objectively, as this person appears to us. We should never get confused. Is that a guy or a girl? I'm not really sure. So I'm going to call it it. Because I don't know. Yeah? Now this has social consequences, but there are more important consequences. Notice the symmetry. A woman should not wear men's clothes. Men's clothes should not wear, a man should not wear women's clothes. Notice the symmetry. In our culture today, let me ask you this question. Raise your hand. I mean, how often, how often on the street do you see a man wearing a skirt? Do you? Now think about that for a second. If we are accepting of the idea that a woman can wear pants... Why should we be shocked if a man wears a miniskirt with high heels? Why is that shocking to us? It is shocking, isn't it? But why? Logically, it makes no sense. If we allow, if we accept, if we have no issues with women wearing men's clothes, why should we be shocked by men wearing women's clothes? There is no logic there, is there? No, what you have is a remnant of this law that sticks culturally in our head but in in a generation from now that will go away and women men will be then able to carry purses and dress with skirts and the rest of it they're already carrying purses it's the start it's going to happen 
Why? Because we have accepted, we've accepted the deformation of the genders. We've accepted that a woman, a woman's worth is judged as the worth of a man by what she can do, by her work. We've accepted that. We promote that. We tell young women, you must work, you must compete, you are as good as them, you can work on it. And uh, I have six girls. I'll tell you right now. They can do everything a man can do, except maybe plumbing, but that's a different story. But they can do it, yes. But is it a question of abilities? It was never a question of abilities. It's a question of sanctity. And when God established his covenant, he told Adam, he told Adam, till and guard. He never told Eve, till and guard. He established ways of sanctity. A man is sanctified by his work. A woman, by being a mother, by being a wife. Here we face the great mystery of creaturehood. We are creatures. Right? And now we better understand what Satan whispered in ears Eve. No, 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 no. You shall surely not die. If you eat from that tree, you will know good and evil, which means you can decide what is good, what is not. And we're doing it. We're doing it. Do you understand how the culture has deformed even our conscience? Because to us, it's completely natural and normal, and we expect, actually, our women to go and work. And we think it's a great thing. The problem isn't the work itself. That's not what the problem is. The problem is through the whole mechanics that we put in place, we have convinced women that the best thing they can do is to be created in the image of a man. Whatever a man does, you should be able to do. Women measure themselves by how well they fare against men. And in that way, in that way, we have taught women to degrade the importance of Our Lady, because that's the immediate attack on Mary. Because Mary was just a mother. Never mind she's the queen of the universe. Never mind there isn't an angel who can even get close to her in terms of sanctity and glory. Never mind that the most important creature in the entire universe, even though there are 50,000 alien uh, cultures out there, even if there are all these... Alien cultures out there, the most important creature of all times, across all times, in this universe and any other universe you can think of, is a woman, not a man. But she's a mom. She's not a CEO. And, by the way, to answer your question that you asked me earlier, Mary never wears pants. So, is wearing pants a big deal? I would say in our culture, probably not. But if you're wearing a pant, pants, sorry, if you're wearing pants, ask yourself, what, who are you? Who do you want to be like? Who is your image? Is it Our Lady or is it a man? It's not so much the pants. It's the intention behind them. And you and I must always ask ourselves these questions. Who am I and who, with, 
whose image am I made into? And by the way, I'll also point out to you that I don't know of any faithful, vibrant order of nuns who wear pants. That must say something to us. They could. They could. Absolutely they could. But, and I'm not talking about when they work in the garden or some reasons or practicality, etc. But in general, it's not what they aspire to do. Why? So, again, I'm not here to tell you what to wear or not wear. That's not my duty. But scripture is clear. And there is a message for all of us to really think carefully about who we are and what image we want to be made into. All right, that's all I'll say on this. Let's move on. All right, and the last thing I'll point out to you in these three chapters, and there are a lot more we can talk about, but at least I'm hoping I'm giving you a flavor of the thinking that Moses is going through and some of these, um, the, the aspects of these laws that have some application into our own lives, things we need to think about. How am I treating my neighbor? How do I treat people who are foreigners to me? You know, we talked a little earlier about what would you do when you capture a city, right? Let's talk, and we would say, well, what do you mean you turn turn them into slaves? That's horrendous. But let me talk about something similar to this, just as horrendous, but is acceptable for us, many of us. If our daughter were to come home with a black guy, Catholic, faithful, he just happens to be black, Think about our way and how we react to that. Good guy. He's Catholic. He's faithful. But he's black. Okay, need I say more? All right. So before we judge these Jews under Moses as being, you know, kind of barbarian, and how could God talk to them this way? Just think about that. That's one example among so many others we can give. So, point is, They had to abide to these laws without grace. Watch what God expected. God expected them to live by these laws without the life of grace. Now, if there was a cruelty in this whole thing, I'd say that's it. It's like I'm telling a kid who's three feet tall to to do, what is it called? Jump with a pole. What do you call that sport? Paul vaulting? Yeah. He's three years old. I want him to... That's what he's basically doing. He's giving them a law by which they could not live. And oftentimes we have that same experience. God, why are you doing this to me? Why are all these things are going... Why is it going terribly? We have a sense as if God is either toying with us or mocking us, or doesn't care about us, or is not here for us, or... The truth of the matter is, he wants us to understand, and absolutely understand, and those of us, and hopefully all of us, who make it to heaven, will get to understand that, either here or in purgatory, but we'll all get to understand that, that we, on our own, are absolutely miserable. We're miserable. And therefore we need his help every minute of our day. And we must be in that conversation with him. That's why he is doing what he's doing. Because he loves them. And that's why he does that with us as well. Because he loves us. 
But we have to soften our hearts and open it and be ready and willing to respond. All right. So, as you can see, Moses covers a whole series of topics, and in every one of them, what is central to his teaching is their relationship to God, not to each other first, first to God. And that in everything they do, they must never allow their, their, their Israel, the whole country, to be contaminated by sin. That should give us pause and make us realize that our relationship to Jesus Christ is not a, just a personal relationship on two accounts. It isn't just about me and Jesus. It's about me and my whole parish and all the people I meet and Jesus. And it's just not about me and Jesus. It is me, Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, Our Lady, St. Joseph, the saints, and the angels. And God walks with us and leads us to understand that truth and to deepen our life of faith in the Trinity and our desire to save others with his mercy. That's how he works through all the trials that he sends our way. All right, God bless you. Let's um, finish with the word of prayer. We'll take some questions. Questions. Very good question. So I did not touch upon this. I repeat the question. The question was that during Deuteronomy, it was legal for a man to marry more than one wife. When did it become the law that a man should marry only one wife? Uh, so yes, you're c- correct. And uh, there are <clears throat> parts in chapter 21 I didn't cover where he specifically talks about that. For instance, he teaches that you cannot choose who is going to be your firstborn. Let's say you have two wives and you... The second is the one you love more than the first. But the first brought, gave, you for, uh, gave forth a son before the second. Well, you, can't, you cannot say, he's not my firstborn. That other kid over there is. So there were some laws that were put in place to protect against that kind of abuse. To answer your question specifically, it was established by Jesus Christ. Because in a the, in the famous conversation he had with the Pharisees who did not believe in the resurrection, they, the Sadducees, thank you, sorry, I knew there was something wrong I was saying. The Sadducees, that came to him, the Sadducees squad came in and gave him that question, right? A man is married to a wife, he dies, and she has seven brothers, and they all die, and they all, okay, right? And then he says to them, in heaven, you're married, you're not married, and, um, well, no, hold on, this is not the right example I have in mind. The one I have in mind was... Maybe it wasn't the same conversation, but anyway, somebody asked him, well, well, why did Moses give us the bill of divorce then? And Jesus told them straight away, for the hardness of your heart, he allowed you to divorce her. But it was not so. For from the beginning, a man and a woman, a man shall leave everything and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be made one, and thus whatever, what God has united, let none man put asunder. And that was the basis for the establishment of the uh, monogamous marriage that today you will find in the Catholic Church, as we maintain this way, in the Orthodox Church, and um, and obviously the Anglican, the Lutheran, um, but, uh, but not really because uh, what I mean by one wife, I mean not only at the same time, but your entire life, right? Some of the churches allow divorce. Therefore, you could end up with more than one wife. 
Um, so I don't know um, about the other churches, but fundamentally in the Catholic Church, and I, I still think in the Orthodox Church they don't allow divorce also. Although I have not looked into it for quite some time. You have that law that has been in existence for now 2,000 years. No, no, not at all. At his time, you could have more than one wife, and people did have more than one wife. There is nothing to... The, 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 the rabbis, to your point, would indicate it eventually that it's best, better to have one wife. I suppose out of practical consideration, right? But nevertheless, there was nothing to prevent, there was nothing in the law for a man not to marry two wives. They did not change that. That law of Moses was still abiding. Right, but having one wife was never, <clears throat> there was nothing in the law that said you are now restricted to marrying only one wife. They could still marry more than one. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that's a very good question. So the question is, the law of warfare, the, um, the dispensation given to a man who was um, newly married, um, was that an option or a, or a, a law? Well, I don't think they were, they were, they, it was expressed as an option because the assumption was that if a man has just been married, uh, he wants to uh, be with his wife. And most importantly, he wants a son, Right? So therefore, it would be almost inconceivable for men to say, no, I am just going to war. Right? So I don't think that's why it was never put as an option. But the understanding was that they would obviously stay with their wives because that's what they wanted to do. Yes. How many wives? Um, so in the scriptures, the indication is that he had many, many wives and many concubines. Uh, and that's because he wanted to essentially create all these political alliances. Uh, keep in mind that by that time, Solomon, so in his youth, he was really a type of Christ because he wanted wisdom and he received it. But in his old age, he became a type of an antichrist. So he was not actually following God's, God's law. Many. And he allowed them to have their own faith. And I mean, yes, the whole, yeah. yeah. Yes. No, the king was not restricted to one wife. Yes, there was a restriction on the number of wives. He should not have many. So we, we, we've studied that last, uh, in the last um, Bible study long before, but he was restricted. He had it to essentially apply temperance. David had more than one wife, right? Uh, but um, he, there was no restriction that stated you would have only one wife. The only case where a man was forced to have only one wife that I know of in the law is in the case of a man who... who raped and a woman who was not betrothed, a virgin who was not betrothed. In that case, he was obligated to take her. No, he would either pay the bride price to her father or he would take her as a wife. But if he took her as a wife, he was not allowed to divorce her. That's the only restriction I know of where divorce was not allowed. But in other, all other cases, it was allowed. And therefore, they could have more than wife. So he could not divorce her. I think he could only have her also. Something to that effect. Or maybe not. I don't remember exactly. But that was the only kind of restriction you have. There aren't a lot. There isn't the intent of making it a monogamous marriage at all. Yes. Very good question. Were concubines spiritually morally acceptable? So there are two aspects to this. There's the objective law of God. And there's the subjective uh, practice, if you will. So objective means as to the law as it is, objectively, and, and subjectively is as to the subject. God's law, obviously, was that there should be only one man and one woman. That's what he established in Genesis. 
Right? Therefore, having a concubine or second wives or all of that was all not morally acceptable. Yes? However, God walked with his people. And he was leading them to Christ, who would then give them the grace to live the way they should live. And hence, he was patient, and he was um, merciful, and he gave, he allowed them to basically live in this imperfect world they were living in because they could not be perfect. The command to be perfect came from Christ. Right? So no, it is not morally justifiable, objectively, for them to have concubines. But given the situation they were in, that and many other things were permitted. It was not a perfect law. And thank God for that because think about our own lives. Who here can claim to be a saint? Right? We all are Catholics, we're all trying to live God's, God's law, and we fall. We commit sins. Right? And God is forbearing with us. Make sense? Yes. Yes. No, what happened is that this specific instance he's talking about, if you find a bird's nest on the floor, let's say, you find the mother with the, with the eggs, you will not take the mother, uh, the mother with the uh, birds, or what do you call them? Just the, a bird. Just the, with the brood. Yeah, with the brood. You're not allowed to take the mother and the brood. You leave the mother alone, right? And the intent here, and I, I, I don't have the context exactly, but here's the, always think of it this way. The intent is for Moses to be able to give them specific examples that highlight certain behavior he wants of them, which is essentially the way you treat a woman, the way you treat a mother. Don't be cruel, right? Restrict your cruelty. You're going to take the birds because you want to eat them. Leave the mother, because it would be painful in, her, in, in the answer for the mother to see her, her children this way. So in the, in the entire context, the whole idea was, how do you treat women? And that's an example of it. So for us, obviously, we can read it, read it literally because we cannot connect easily that with women. We don't, use, we don't talk this way. But that's what the overall context would have been. Yeah. So here's the thing. We think that Moses wants to speak only about one particular event. But think of it this way. The way we would do it today would be to say, um, um, yeah, like I give you the example many, many times. If I were to say to you, oh, yeah, we're getting ready for another 9-11. Right? Fast forward 2,000 years. Somebody's reading my text, let's say. And he sees we're getting ready for another 9-11. He might go into math, right, into arithmetics, try to understand the symbol of the number 9, the relationship to 11, maybe add them together, right? Why? He does not have the context of what I'm talking about. It's just the tip of the iceberg. And that is a law that is a tip of an iceberg that culturally meant way more for them than it did us. Yes. Yes. Yes, a very good question. The question is, how do the, Jew, the, the, Jews, uh, the contemporary Jews today can say that there are Jews when, in fact, the temple is not present anymore? Those laws that Moses gave, most of them they cannot live by. How can they still say that they are Jews? Right? And the answer to this is the Mishnah, which is the commentary on the Torah. And the Mishnah has commentaries across the ages by rabbis who sort of adapted what the law said to different times much like what the church does, and so adapted it to today's living. However, adaptation is really a stretch because now the way, for instance, they celebrate, um, they celebrate um, Passover, so they can't in New York, let's say, go outside and slaughter a lamb, 
right, and then paint the lamp, you know, the doorpost with blood. Instead, and I fully don't understand why the ceremonial worked this way, so I, I do, uh, I do uh, profess ignorance here, but my understanding is that I take a chicken and I have to whirl it above their head a number of times. Now, how is that related to the temple is a very good question. And I was talking to a Jew who was a convert to Catholicism last week, and he himself said he didn't fully understand that. So uh, keep in mind that Jews today do not believe in original sin. That's the bigger issue we have. To them, Adam and Eve's fall were their own, but it had nothing to do with us. If you don't believe in original sin, we have a much deeper gap to work with. Yeah? Yes? Um, I really don't have a... So the question is about women in the military, particularly in, uh, in the context of the, of the state of Israel where everybody is constrict, conscripted, right? Um, I think the overall comment that I would make is that it's an indication, again, generally speaking, of this tendency for a woman to be made in the image of a man and to do what a man is supposed to do. So not that I think men should actually go to war all the time, that's a different story, but I think it falls under this category. Not just in war, but in every other category of work, a woman is actually taking on active duty. And even today in universities, we know that there is a very silent crisis the universities are going through, and that is the ratio of men to women has switched. There are more women who are successfully completing their degrees than there are men. So, um, and that is an indication of what happens when women end up imitating men in all these disciplines. Men simply pull back. They check out. And, you know, guys are really good at that. That's what they wanted to do. You want to go fishing. Oh, you want to do it? Go for it, honey. I'm just going fishing. Call me when you need me. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's a different story. But that, that's all I could say about that. Yes. How did the Mormon got the idea of multiple wives? Um, yes. The, uh, the answer is that Joseph Smith uh, stated that God revealed it to him, that he could have multiple wives. The day after his wife caught him with a young girl who was 18 years old. I, I'll leave it at that. Yes. Yeah. Very good question. What about kilts, right? My, and that's a very good question because it illustrates the point I was trying to make. It's not the pants per se. It's not the skirt per se. It's the fact that in every culture, certain clothing are associated with a specific gender. Now, in a Scottish tradition, a kilt is associated with a man. Therefore, a woman wearing a kilt would look like a man, I suppose. And that would be then the same thing as women here wearing pants, looking like men. So it's not so much the, the, the pants or the skirt, whatever. It's the clothing. I'm talking here about women wearing pants that are cut in the style of a man. There are a number of uh, styles which are very feminine, meaning a man would not wear them. And that, obviously, that's not what I'm talking about, right? But so, so that, that's what I would say. Yes. What I was saying is that in a given culture, when certain customs are attributed to men versus women, what the, the, the teaching is telling us is protect those because as soon as we start allowing these to mix, we're going to mix the genders and then we're into not just a big sociological problem where it's actually provo provoking God's wrath because the family is now in crisis. Right? God bless you.
We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.